Maybe you have or haven't uh, read the book of Nahum, but it's three chapters. It's very short. It's in the Old Testament. If you have not been with us, we are going through a series on the minor prophets. And as we have been looking at one of the minor prophets each week, we now come to the book of Nahum. We'll be in chapter one this morning. As you're finding the book of uh, Nahum, uh, some questions for you this morning. Have you or do you ever wonder if God is truly good? Have you ever doubted God's goodness? You look in this world and you see war, sickness, disease. You see famine, death, poverty. You wonder why, like King David, the wicked get richer. You think of divorce, all kinds of abuse. You look at our world where crime is always increasing, but yet the criminals go free. We look at our nation where babies are murdered in the womb and now in the state of Montana outside of it. Do you doubt if God is truly God? Have you ever wondered if God is really good when you see trouble in this world? Do you struggle with God being the sovereign commander of the universe and you see the trouble and you wonder why? Do you think that God owes you something this morning because you followed him and believed in him? We must not forget, as the word of God tells us from beginning to end, that God is holy, that God is glorious, that God is mighty. He's powerful. He is just. God is sovereign and God is good. And I pray that that is what you see from the word of God this morning. I also pray, though, that you would see that your sinfulness before God is great. And God's wrath and vengeance and his jealousy is true. Do you fear God with a holy reverence? Or do you flaunt your sins before him in hatred? The book of Hebrews tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And as you go to the book of Nahum, it's one that probably is not preached on much because it covers the wrath of God from beginning to end. And yet there's one verse, which we'll see today in verse 7, it says, the Lord is good. But yet people want to see Nahum and say, oh yeah, that's for Nineveh and the wrath of God. And this morning, we must look to the wrath of God if we want to understand the grace of God. And I truly believe if you see and understand God's jealous avenging and wrathful character, you will understand greater his love and his grace and his mercy. The scriptural truth from Nahum chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 is this. God's judgment on evil and wickedness is good news for those who take refuge in him. Look with me at verses 1 through 8 of Nahum chapter 1. It says in verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. 
Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The word of God. Father, again, we ask that you bless the reading, the preaching, the word. Give us understanding that we would apply it and live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you uh, listen to sermons online or people teaching the Word of God, you probably are not quick to go look up the topic, the wrath of God. Many people do not want to listen to the wrath of God. I would say, as I was studying this week, there are very few sermons in the scheme of all sermons that are preached today where the wrath of God is even mentioned. The wrath of God is not something that we want to put together with God because God is love. He's graceful. He gives us his grace. He's he's mercy. Why would we want to talk about God's wrath? Why would we want to talk about God, as it says here, as a jealous God? Why would we want to talk about God as one who takes vengeance on his enemies? Oh, that doesn't go in line with God's love. You've probably heard this before. You've probably seen this in our world, especially in our country. No one wants to ever point to God as a God of wrath because we're afraid. Do we dare ever say hell? That someone's going to be offended. Church, you must know the gospel, the word of God is offensive to everyone because everyone has sinned against God. And when we see our sinfulness and we see the truth of God through Jesus Christ, who gives us the way to be saved from our sins, um, we see a loving, gracious God. And when we see that, we can see him as a loving God and as a God of wrath. It's no surprise as we come to Nahum that this is any different than the last few books in the Minor Prophets. Or if you go and read the Greater Prophets, go read Isaiah, Jeremiah. The wrath of God is laid out and many people think, well, that's Old Testament. We don't talk about wrath in the New Testament. Go and read Revelation chapter 19. We've looked at this multiple times over the last month. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment. Go and read, which we'll see today, Passage after passage in the gospel accounts where Jesus speaks of hell as the punishment, the wrath of God for all who die in their sins. And so let us look to Nahum. Let us look to verses 1 through 2 and verse 8. The Lord is a jealous, he is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. Look at verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. If you were here two weeks ago, what book did we study? Jonah. Jonah was in Nineveh. Just over a hundred years before uh, Nineveh is destroyed. And if you go back and read Jonah chapters 1 through 4 as we studied, we saw that God gave Jonah the same message he gives Nahum. Go tell the city of Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them. And as he wanted to run from God, and he was thrown into the ocean, and God sent a fish to swallow him and save him, and to spit him out, and to send him to Nineveh. He went into the city, and he said, the Lord will destroy you. And what did the people of Nineveh do then? What did they do? They repented. The whole city 
From the king on down, he says, let even the animals be covered with sackcloth. And God spared them. His mercy was upon them. When you read Jesus speaking of Jonah and the city of Nineveh, in the gospel accounts, Jesus says the people that repented then in Nineveh will be judges. So point to the fact that their repentance, their belief in the Lord God Almighty, that they were saved. But here you now move a hundred years later or more and the destruction of Nineveh is at hand. And what has happened to the people of Nineveh? It lasted a generation. Repentance lasted for some. But you see, if you read the book of Nahum and these three chapters in his whole, Nineveh, the great wicked city. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was seen as an impenetrable stronghold. This city that had walls seven miles long around it, a hundred feet tall. Some parts of the wall were a hundred feet thick. There was a moat seven miles long around this city, a river that flowed under the city. So they always had water and it was thought that it would never be destroyed. But yet it was destroyed. And archaeologists have found its ruins because the Lord declared it would happen. And it did. Jonah and Nahum warned them of that coming wrath. And Jonah saw God spare a generation who repented. If you read the book of Nahum this week, or if you've read it this week, you will know that in chapter 1, we see God's righteous judgment, not only on Nineveh, but also God's righteous judgment and His character of who He is. In chapter 2, we see Nineveh's destruction, which God says will happen. And in chapter 3, the reason is Nineveh is guilty of great transgression and sin before the Lord. Again, I would remind you that these minor prophets don't just sit down and make something up to write. God calls them from where they're at. He tells them exactly what to write down, what to say to the people. And that is what they declare. The word of God. Men do not make up these things. Verse two, let us look at it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum directs our attention, the reader, to the attributes of God. And as our study over a year ago, we only looked at a, a certain number of God's attributes. And yet here we come again to the attributes of God. Literally in Exodus chapter 34, it says that God's name is jealous. So look at the first three things, jealousy, avenging God and wrathful God, jealous. It says God is a jealous God. And when we think of jealousy, though, we think of envy or hatred towards someone because they have what I should have. That person is doing better in this and I should have already passed them at that. Why are those people blessed and not me? And we think of that sinful type of jealousy, but yet there's no sinfulness in a holy, righteous God who his name, one of his names is Jealous. You think, well, how is that? Well, God is God. God is devoted to his will. He's devoted to his plan. And he's devoted to his people alone. And God is for God. God is for his own glory. God is for his own honor. He's not for your honor. He's not for your glory. He's for his glory. But yet you've been raised, most of you, in a nation that says, we need attention for my glory. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to get my way in this country. And I'm going to rise to the top. And what you're not taught is God is God. And you are not. 
So he receives all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And if we could get that right, always imagine the walk daily with him. But because we forget, we have the word of God. We forget so easily, and so we pray, Holy Spirit, direct me, remind me from your word that you are holy, you are righteous, you are good, you are God, and you can do what you please. And I can't do anything to stop you or convince you or to change you because the word of God tells us our God never changes. And so he's a jealous God. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. After God showed his might and power and brought the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them out of there into the wilderness and then onto the promised land. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments up on the mountain. And it says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." And so God gives them his law and he says from the beginning, do not worship any other person, other thing, other idol. As the Apostle Paul says that if you are worshiping idols of wood or stone, you're worshiping demons, you're worshiping fallen angels. And God said, I will not share my glory with anyone at all. And so he tells his people from the beginning to worship him alone. God is a jealous God. For his will, his way, his plan, his people. But it also says there, look at verse 2, three times. It says avenging, avenging, and takes vengeance. Our God is an avenging God. He takes vengeance on his enemies. We live in a world that when we see our enemies fall, we celebrate. We take joy when our enemies are destroyed and wiped out. When that person who has attacked you verbally or that person has done something wrong to you in your work, when that person at school has done something wrong to you, we rejoice when we see them fall on their face. We rejoice when we see trouble come upon their life and we say, thank you, Lord, for wiping out my enemy. God is not like that. God is not like that. It's not about getting payback on another person. When it says to be an avenging God, it means to avenge himself, oneself, to exact retribution by inflicting wrath. The Lord does and will take vengeance on his enemies. Therefore, we must ask, who are the enemies of God? Because we can be quick to say who our enemies are in this world. Believers can quickly say oh, our enemies are Satan and the demons. But who are the enemies of God as much you ask if he's going to take vengeance on his enemies? This is not just a vengeance and a wrath and a destruction coming upon Nineveh. This is God showing us and teaching of his wrath upon all of his enemies in all of time. It says the Lord will take vengeance on his enemies. Well, we know that Satan and the fallen angels, the demons are the enemies of God. 
But also the enemies of God are all wicked mankind. All unbelieving, without the gift of faith, are enemies of God. And God will avenge himself, his people. God will not allow nations to go unpunished. Look at all of our history on this earth and all of the great world nations. All of those who had great world powers. Every single one of them. Nations who did not fear the Lord. Destroyed. Wiped out. Kings put in their places and kings taken out. And God destroys his enemies. God will not allow people or nations to go unpunished. And for the believer, the follower of Christ today, the promises of God that those who are persecuted will be avenged by God. From the Sermon on the Mount and to to the letters of the Apostle Paul, to the book of Revelation, we see that the persecuted are avenged by the Lord God Almighty. Deuteronomy 32, God says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will be the one who vindicates his people. And we want Uh, uh, We want a vindicator. We want an avenger. Not one of the Marvel Avengers. This is a better avenger. The avenger. The Lord God Almighty. Because it says in Revelation 12, 19. For all of you who have a plan to take vengeance on your enemy. Hold on. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Romans 12, 19. But leave it to the wrath of God For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, when I read that this week, I was reminded of times that I wanted to get vengeance on enemies. And it made me think back to junior high and high school, when students can be so cruel and so troublesome to one another and so attacking and so hurtful, you begin in your mind to plot out how to get revenge. Or is that just me? Some of you are thinking about your great plots and you could probably tell me afterwards, I got this person back. Wish you could see it. I wish we had on video then. Well, we're not supposed to be that way. I mean, that's the human side, the sinful side of us. We want to see the enemies fall. But the Lord says, don't plan it. Don't cheer for it. That he is the one that will avenge his people. So don't try to take his work into your hands. But that's hard. Because some of us were waiting. Lord, it's been 10 years. I'm still waiting for vengeance to be taken out on that person. And you may not ever in your lifetime see that. But know that the Lord's word says that he will take vengeance upon his enemies and upon all those who would come against his people. So the Lord is a jealous God. He's an avenging God. And the third thing there in verse 2 is that he's a wrathful God. And again, this is the part that we do not want to talk about. We do not want to think about or reflect on what God's word describes about the wrath of God. Because when we read the verses that tell us the wrath of God, it is a fearful thing. It is a troubling thing to think about what God's word says and describes his wrath God's wrath is fierce indignation and anger, a righteous anger. It's his hatred towards sin. And I think that's why we don't want to hear about it, because we know we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, if sinners deserve the wrath of God, I don't want to think about that. But I believe, especially for the believer, when you think of the wrath of God, the grace of God means so much more. 
Because through the blood of Jesus Christ, the believer has been set free from the wrath of God because Jesus bore it for you. And therefore you can say, praise the Lord, O my soul. His steadfast love endures forever. That he does love me. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he is a God of wrath. Know this though. The world, and maybe many of us at some point, would think of a wrathful God as a God who has evil intentions. A God who is just irritable. He's emotional. He's bad tempered. And he's trying to get even with us because we've wronged him. If you think that that is what God is like, that's not one description in the word of God about who he is. That is something that you have thought up and invented out of your own mind or believed the lies of Satan and the demons or believed the lies of the wicked of the world. Therefore, go to the word of God. God is completely holy. He is completely just and he is completely a God of love. His Jealousy, his vengeance, and his wrath are not contradictions to his grace and love and mercy and holiness and justice. They all go together because if we deny the wrath of God, then, or if we say that's not something that he does, then we're denying that he is a completely just God. We're denying that he's a completely holy God if we say God's not a God of wrath. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. It says this. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Listen to this. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous When you read of the wrath of God in the word of God, fire is always in a description of it. Destruction is described in it. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous He is jealous for your worship of any idol, of any person, or worship of yourself. And he will pour out his wrath on all who do not love him, all who do not worship him, all who do not have faith in him will face the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. Look here in Nahum. Skip down to verse 8. It says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into what? Into darkness. God is furious with mankind because of the wickedness and sinfulness of our hearts. God as the word of God tells us, created hell for Satan and the demons and for all who die in their sins and wickedness. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone has no love for God, for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
anathema. If there is no love for the Lord God Almighty in your heart, you are cursed. And so again, we live in a world where people don't want to talk about the wrath of God, and especially we don't want to say the word hell. Or if we want to say hell, we want to bring down the volume on hell. But church, you need to speak of hell, and you need to speak of wrath if you're going to speak of the love of God and the grace of God. Because why should anyone ever turn from their sins just because God loves you? Why? I just continue what I'm doing. God loves me. No, you must tell people that if they continue in their sins, they will die in their sins. They will go to hell for eternity. And the wrath of God the Father will be upon them for eternity. There's some slides I put up on the screens for you. Describing hell. These are just a few. Here's some in Matthew. These are Jesus' words. Who is Jesus? He's God. Jesus says, Hell is outer darkness. Well, we just read that here in Nahum. And this is just, it's repeated. Hell is the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is described as a fiery furnace. Hell is described as eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. And hell is eternal punishment. Go to the next slide. Gospel of Mark, the book of Jude, Revelation 19. Hell is described as an unquenchable fire. You ever tried to put out a huge raging fire before? You ever seen our firefighters fighting fires that were hard to put out? Forest fires, some of you know well here. The unquenchable fire is described of hell. It says where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Punishment of eternal fire. The word eternal, eternity. The lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You need to know that to deny hell and eternal punishment is to deny the justice of God. Go to the last slide. This week, read Luke chapter 16. The parable which Jesus speaks of the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man. They both die and the rich man ends up in Hades, in hell, in torment. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom and he can be seen by the rich man. And the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, Send Lazarus with some water to touch my tongue and cool it because I'm in anguish in this flame. Send Lazarus to warn my family uh, of this place of torment. And he says, even if someone came back from the dead, they wouldn't turn. And you could go on and on, but these are only a few descriptions. Most or many don't want hell to be true. And the way that some people get around hell is they say, well, God loves people so much. Uh, their hell is, in, you know, God really wouldn't do that. So really what this means is he's just going to just obliterate them, destroy them, annihilate them when they die. So they're still being punished, but they're also receiving the grace of God. I mean, we could go on and on with all the, the, the made-up stuff by people who try to calm down the word hell and the wrath of God, and they want to hide from it because they don't know how to 
reconcile with God's holiness and his justice and his mercy and his love. And I would say it's a great sin for us to not tell people that their sin and rejection of the Lord will lead them to the eternal wrath of God in hell. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. The second point, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Some of you say, wonderful, great. The Lord is slow to anger. I love this. I cling to this. And he's great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. <clears throat> Again, a hundred so years before Nineveh was destroyed, God sent Jonah and said, repent, turn from your sins. Turn to the Lord God Almighty. And the people did But at some point, the next generation, just like when God warned the nation of Israel, if you do not tell your children about uh, what I have done for you, they will forget and they will turn from me and they will worship idols. Some point in the city of Nineveh, the next generation turned from their repentance and the next group the next group of children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren continued in great wickedness. Here is what the Lord tells Moses in Exodus chapter 34 about himself. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We stopped there like, praise the Lord. I mean, amen. Are you reading the words of God? Are you thankful for reading those words? For those of you who know the grace of God, you're like, yes, amen. It also goes on and says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There is a point when God ceases in his waiting and his patience is run out. His anger has been there. And his wrath will be poured out and his punishment will be upon his enemies. There is a point that when his patience ends, has God been patient with you? Has God been patient with your sinfulness in your life? Many of you say, yes, he's been very patient with me. And you read this Nahum and get to that and you're like, oh, a great comforting verse. But really, no, it's not. Yes, God's patient, but he still pours out his wrath upon Nineveh and wipes them out. God still has wrath for those who are his enemies. God will not clear the guilty. God will have his justice. And that even means on his own people. You say, wait, what do you mean? God will have wrath on his own people? I thought God doesn't pour out his wrath on his own people. Well, let us look at Romans chapter 5. Here is how God pours out his wrath and gets justice for the sins of his own people. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still what, church? Sinners. Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Did you get that? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be what? Saved by his life. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he hung on the cross for his people. And as he shed his blood, he bore the sins of his people. He did not bear the sins of everyone. Because if he bore the sins of everyone, then everyone would be saved. Think about that for a moment. God's blood was shed for his people. And God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ the Son. That was meant for you, church. There should be great gratefulness and thankfulness that Jesus Christ bore your sins and the wrath that you would be spared from even a second in the eternal punishment of hell. I was thankful this week. been thankful over the last month to know that Three of my children and the youth ministry here in this church are blessed because we have two leaders, Chobe Flores and Caleb Jenkins, who teach our youth the Word of God. And over the last month or so, five weeks, I've been able to just help as there's been a need with two new babies in the family and people getting nights off. And this last week, uh, Chobe was sitting right here, the students were gathered around, and the the continued study on the salvation of God that came to the point of hell. You're like, wow, wait, he's talking about hell this week. We're looking at hell this week in Nahum. And as he asked the students questions and as they read the word of God, it was like, whoa, hell is real. It is God's wrath. And I was thankful that we have a youth leader and youth leaders who do not restrain from telling youth, children, our students, the truth. And as we reflected on that, the wrath of God upon those in hell, we were reminded of the grace of God at the cross of Jesus, that we could be forgiven and saved. Nahum then, look at verses 3, 4, and 5. He points to God's power, not only his wrath, but his power. He speaks of the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds. He rebukes the sea. He dries up the rivers says the mountains quake before him. Do not forget the power of God, church. Do not forget that he is mighty, that he is powerful, that he can do what he wants to do, that he said, let there be light, and there was light, that God has spoken, and we've come to existence. That as Isaiah 40 says, the Lord can blow upon you and you wither like the grass, that he can take you out in an instant You think of, as you read verses 3 through 6, the whirlwind and the storm, the hurricane that hit Florida this week, the tornadoes that you've seen this year. The Lord is in control of those. He rebukes the sea. Some of you watched the show Deadliest Catch before. And you've seen those guys on the Bering Sea fighting through those waves, trying to get those wonderful, glorious Alaskan crabs so that everyone can feast on them. And yet it's the Lord who can say the word and stop it in an instant. To think about that God dries up the rivers, 
the Colorado River that fills Lake Powell with 27 million acre feet of water is dry. It's drying out. And what does our world cry? Global warming. You can call it whatever. Scripture says the Lord dries up. He's the one that sends the rain. He's the one that holds back the rain. He's the one that sends the whirlwind. It says he's the one that causes the earth to quake. Did you see the volcano in Tonga that blew up in the last week? Ashes that flew almost into space. The island that that volcano was, it's gone. And you want to say, oh, well, the earth's heating up. It's just angry. No, the Lord is the one who causes the world to quake. He's the one who shifts the plates in this world. He's the one who controls all of this. So you call it global warming or whatever. It's the Lord God Almighty. All of creation worships him. And therefore, we should give him honor that is due. Do not forget the power of God. And if you, power, if you put the power of God with God's wrath and you think about that upon the person in hell, wow. Because verse 6, he says, he asks the question, who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before the Lord God Almighty? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Who, church? Man, you guys kind of mumbled down. You're like, I think I got it right. I think I'm going to say no one, but you never know. Maybe he'll say something. No, no one can stand before the Lord God Almighty because all have been born with the sin of Adam passed down. Therefore, the word of God tells us in Romans and in Ephesians that we are enemies of God until God does a work through his son Jesus to make his enemies his people. So can you stand before God? No. Can you stand before his anger and wrath? No. There's no good thing, no merit. I mean, again, sometimes we think God owes me because I had a great year. Man, I did this for the Lord. Man, I read my Bible. I prayed three times a day. I did this, this, and this. And sometimes we really think in the back of our mind and believe a lie that then God owes me. God owes you nothing. He does not owe any of you or me eternal life. God did not need anyone so that he could be good. God has always been good before he created anyone. He has been eternally holy and eternally good and eternally loving. And he's been eternally jealous and eternally a wrathful God. All of these descriptions of who God is. And he never needed to create any one of us. God is good. Period. Psalm chapter 111, verse 10. Psalm chapter 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Our nation, the United States of America, is no different from Nineveh. Is no different... From other nations that you say, oh, those wicked nations in this world. Our world, our nation does not fear God. Our nation thinks that they can stand before God because of our history, 
There is not a holy reverence or fear before the Lord God Almighty. God can wipe out this nation in an instant and he doesn't need a war and he doesn't need a nuclear bomb. He can say and all of us can fade like the grass. So I was reading Matthew 10 this week in Matthew 10 verse 28. It says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do we have a holy reverence? And fear of the Lord God Almighty. I pray that we do here. I pray that our nation would change. I pray that people would come. To a understanding. Of their sinfulness before the Lord. I pray that our nation would see the wickedness that abounds in our nation. And that we like Nineveh when Jonah went. Nationwide would fall on our knees. And worship the Lord God Almighty. And ask for forgiveness and plead for mercy. That God would show his mercy and his love to us. But many times I think, how many more days, Lord, are you going to spare us? And even when I think that. Again, there's temptations to think wrongly of the Lord God Almighty. And so when you look at verse 7, Nahum points to this attribute which I've been mentioning. He speaks of God's goodness. And so therefore, whatever God's will and plan and what he does and who he pours out his wrath on and who he saves, the Lord is good. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is good, period, end of sentence. There's nothing more to say. God is good. He's good in His character. He has always been good. He always will be good. Forever, in all of eternity, God is good and He will not change. God needs none of us to come to him to be good. He is good before he ever created any one of us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It says this, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians. So if you're a Christian, you understand this. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would come to understand this. It says, and you were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here it is. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of God. God is so good. God is so good that he would set out his plan and his will to save his people. And that he would send his son, Jesus Christ. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, for the believer, those who's been given the gift of faith, who believe that Jesus Christ died for them in their place and took the wrath for them, and that by his blood that was shed, they're saved, that he rose from death to life. There is great joy for the believer. There is great comfort to know. And in our hearts, we say God is good. Therefore, in closing, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Are you in the midst of the day of trouble? If you have not come to that point and realized that you are in the day of trouble, know that the day of trouble is coming. Jesus Christ is returning, and everyone will stand before him. And no one is able to stand before the Lord God Almighty except for all who have the righteousness of Christ, who have been clothed by the blood of Christ and His righteousness and can stand before the Lord God Almighty and God sees His children who He's adopted. It says in Psalm 107, No, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures how long? Forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. As the worship team comes forward, let us... Seek the Lord in prayer. Second Thessalonians 1 says this, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Heavenly Father, we come before you in holy reverence and in awe of your power and your might and your glory and your love, your grace and your goodness. You've been so good to your people that you would love us first, that you would not require anything of us but that you would send your son to die for us and that you would raise your son from death to life and that you would give us the gift of faith that we who were once enemies are now brought in by the blood of the lamb to be children of God. We praise you. Your steadfast love endures forever. Father, for any in this place 
who are in fear and trembling this morning because they know they have sinned against you and they know that they have wronged you and they are in great fear and terror of wrath that would come upon them for eternity. I pray that today in this moment is the day of salvation and that they would call out to you, that they would know there's no prayer to pray other than to say, Lord, help me, save me, make me your own, forgive me, that you would bring about repentance And Father, for our country, we pray that you would bring about on the consciences of the people their sins before the Lord, that you would turn them to repentance and you would do a wonderful, glorious work of salvation. We pray that for our city, that this city will repent like the city of Nineveh did. And that we would see thousands and thousands and thousands believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And may you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name.